Hello and welcome to Filmwalk. This is Glenn. I'm here with Daniel. Hello. And tonight we're going to be reviewing one of the Bloomhouse uh, selections from the Welcome to the Bloomhouse block that has just dropped on Amazon Prime. And uh, that film is called Nocturne, the debut feature from director Zoo Quirk. We heard your news. Juilliard. Congrats. That's incredible. You're thinking of my sister B. She's going to Juilliard next year. What makes Vivian the star? Jules. I'll always be there for you. And you, whatever you are. What if I could be more? What if I could be great? All I need is a chance to prove myself. Moira Wilson was one of the finest musicians ever to grace this academy. We have decided to rerun the senior concerto competition in her memory. I stole Moira's theory book. She carved symbols all over the wall and threw herself out a third floor window. She was brilliant. The competition is a big opportunity. I have to beat her. That was from the trailer of Nocturne, the new film from director Zoo Quirk, which you can now view on Amazon Prime as we are recording this. Uh, the film stars Sidney Sweeney, Madison Iceman, Jacques Coleman, and Ivan Shaw. This film features two sisters, uh, Juliet and Vivian Lowe, who are uh, in competition, but also in a loving sisterly relationship at a uh, prestigious boarding music school, uh, an arts high school, and uh, sort of sort of Hogwarts for uh, piano, if you will. They don't, they're not divided into different houses, but they do seem to live there apart from their their parents. Their parents are wealthy and uh, off traveling in uh, Europe, and basically the two of them are competing for one prestigious solo, which might land one of them a scholarship or a uh, or an admission to Juilliard. Complicating things is that one of them has already been uh, accepted to Juilliard at the beginning of this film. By and large, Vivian, known as V in the film, is uh, the more success has been the more successful and talented of the two. But they are both dutiful players of the piano, and they are both in competition for. Basically, perfect creative expression. This uh, this film feels like the spiritual successor to the likes of Darren Aronofsky's Black Swan. Uh, it feels very much in the same vein in that it tries to feed a sort of desperate pursuit of the creative process into the horror lens and uh, sort of mixing in a supernatural horror element as well as a psychological horror element into the uh, the mix. So, Daniel, I'll put it to you. Uh, what did you think of this film? You know, I liked uh, Sydney Sweeney's performance. I was familiar with her from her... Uh, Brief uh, tour on Handmaid's Tale, which oh, she okay. claimed a she played a uh, doomed character, like most of the women on Handmaid's There were a lot Tale. of doomed women on that show. Uh, so I was familiar with her from that, and I remember liking her performance on Handmaid's Tale. And she does uh, quite a good job here, here as well as the lead. I have to say that the movie felt pretty telegraphed, and that was partly by design, right? You 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 have a specific magical item, and it is <laughs> right. Uh, uh, guiding her through this path, and the path is very well laid out and very clear as to what's going to happen to her. Yeah, Daniel, if you find a cursed comp book with a uh, promising you eternal glory, if you follow the path within, and it's not like a copy of Dianetics, do you just put it back where you found it, or do you follow the steps within? You know, I guess when you're desperate to achieve some some sort of greatness uh, over your sister, who is more talented, more driven, or at least uh, more capable of seizing opportunities, maybe you take the cursed book. But, I mean, if it's me, I put it back on the shelf and I just forget about it. Uh, I think a movie had a few missed opportunities where I was waiting for something more to happen or a unique spin that didn't take place. It was fine. Like, I, I think it was a very solid, mediocre film with a few good performances. 
That is harsh, Daniel. I I have to say I appreciated the melodrama on display here. I was I was kind of with you for the first act of this. It felt pretty standard. Uh, it felt like there was uh, like I was I was digging the performances. I think the both uh, both Eisman and Sweeney did a fine job here, um, playing characters who ultimately. You know they want to succeed. They want to do well, and they they're in a hard situation because they've both been playing piano alongside each other since they were little kids. But one of them has had greater success than the other, and that's sort of you know that, that's just a that's just a natural, almost biblical story of of uh, you know sibling rivalry and sibling jealousy. And you kind of hope that you know they'll eventually figure out like oh maybe piano's for her, maybe I need to figure out something else for myself. This is watching two characters go through a difficult time in their lives. They're figuring out what their future career is going to be. And one of them who's been doing that, they've been doing the same things this whole time. Uh, but one of them is all, is about to advance to a prestigious, you know, the, the best art school in the world, Juilliard. And the other one is she might maybe get a solo. That's but, you know, but she's probably going to lose that as well. And watching Sweeney play this character who is who is in this tough spot this unenviable spot. Uh, I was kind of on board with her performance right away. It's, uh, you know, neither one of them feels ill-meaning. Neither one of them feels like they did anything to cause this situation. They're both, you know, pretty down-to-earth and, and reasonable characters to begin with. It's just they're in a hard situation. And I was kind of digging the family drama uh, with that straight away. Now, that said, we start off this film watching a girl named Moira, played by Ji Yun Wang, and she is practicing this violin piece, uh, The Devil's Trill by Tartini is how it's identified later on. And it is a real piece of music mm-hmm. uh, by an Italian composer. I, I, it was not one that I was familiar with, even being a former violin player myself. But uh, Well, you're not allowed to play. It's cursed. Yeah, she had carved weird symbols on the wall, and uh, then she she finishes her solo. She sets down her instrument and promptly steps off the balcony and and takes her own life. And that's the premise, basically. That's what this is all leading to. That's what the cursed book is all about. Is this is going to end with you achieving your maximum potential and summoning that pure creative force? But like the devil's going to take your soul. You know, it's that classic kind of Faustian bargain. And in that sense, I'm with you. This was definitely following a formula and it was a formula that it laid right out uh but that said i found this movie immensely entertaining and it really started to click for me around the second act when it really just kind of let the sort of melodramatic elements of this seep through there is a character in this film uh professor henry cask played by avon shaw and this guy is ridiculous like you want a character that's gonna stand out as evil the second he appears on screen it's this guy (laughs) He's initially V's professor, and uh, and then eventually becomes Jules's professor, and it's just clear that he's sort of the Tony Todd's creepy mortician role from Final Destination. Like he's the guy with mysterious magical knowledge of what's going on here, but who kind of just wants to watch it all play out anyway. He's like the uh, the horror fan and mythologist on display in the uh, in, in the film. Yeah, so he's pretty aloof, you know, considering he he's watching you know two of his uh, proteges destroy themselves. Yeah, just kind of melt down through an evil supernatural force that he clearly understands himself. The other film that I found myself comparing this to was Whiplash, uh, which is a a film in which J.K. Simmons plays a horrifically psychologically abusive uh, music professor who's just just basically trying to beat creative genius into his uh, his subjects. And he's the guy who believes that 
the only way that you're going to get these world famous creative types, the one, the sort of the concert instrument players who are out in the world, you know, winning competitions and doing solos and and uh, you know playing for the, playing for the London Philharmonic or whatever. The only way you're going to get those people is if is if somebody like him, who's just a regular talented music professor, just beats the ever loving shit out of everyone until they reach their potential. If he's not whipping a cymbal across the room at you, we're never going to get the best drum solo in the world out of you. That is literally the thesis of that of that film. And it's a thesis that I find highly dubious. I was going to say, well, this film has the opposite of that, where it's, I guess if you're emotionally distant from your <laughs> protege, then that's going to somehow bring greatness out of them. It seems like it kind of looks a big grift at the end, right? Greatness really isn't expected. It's just mostly just to bilk the parents out of money. Yeah, I, th- I think we we can talk about we can talk about sort of what this film's overriding ideology is when we get into spoilers here. But that is kind of what made the supernatural horror aspect of this work for me because none of this was particularly scary. Like, yeah, we see some creepy, gory moments, and we definitely get to watch these two fairly talented young actresses expressing the ways in which this is affecting them, and and uh, Sweeney in particular because she's the only one who really knows what's going on, having to deal with this horrific sort of the walls closing in on her but you know the demon is ultimately her own desire and her own envy and treating this sort of supernatural aspect as a as something that could just be a metaphor or not is usually a pretty solid choice for a horror film if you want me to care about it make your horror film into a drama first and foremost and just add the uh, add the supernatural elements in there after that where we don't need them explained in detail we don't need them spelled out precisely i just need to give a shit about them and, th- and this movie pulled that off for me yeah i mean jules uh, basically goes through an icarus story where she flies a little bit too high and gets <laughs> burned at the end i guess uh there were things that they played with, you know, it taking place in the modern world. Uh, you know, they mentioned Instagram generation. They, you know, they mentioned, you know, how classical music is dying. They, they, they mentioned a lot of different things that I, I thought were, were pretty interesting. But then they didn't do anything with it. You know, Jules doesn't, you know, have any social media. I think it would have been a bit of a missed opportunity there. You know, it would have been nice if, if maybe she had fans or people rooting for her on social media. And she felt that external pressure to perform not only to to main not only to achieve her own greatness and potential but that like of what's expected of her from a social media perspective right you know there's nothing more that people like on social media than to tear someone down that they built up so i think that was a little bit of a missed opportunity i I think the professors, like, none of them are uh, Gustavo Dugamel, right? <laughs> like, none of them are really good at, at, at their jobs. I, I think it would have been interesting if maybe there was a more of a pa- passionate, you know, professor or someone that was really trying to see those kids achieve, but, like, wasn't able to bring it out of them because, you know, quite frankly, not everyone has it, right? Some people don't have it. And I think there was some missed opportunities. I think there was a few moments where, uh, for me, I mean, none of the supernatural horror was particularly scary or interesting, really. Like, there's a bright light. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought there was there were some interesting cinematography choices here. Um, I think the film, by and large, was was shot quite well, and I think that for for what working with clearly what was a limited budget, uh, just allowing like, oh, these are the stage lights in my face as I'm creeping down a dark hallway, or or sort of playing with light and color in interesting ways. Uh, the cinematography is from Carmen Cabana. Um, I thought I thought. Basically, they did fine with what they were going for, but again, I, I'm with you. The supernatural horror elements were, were pretty basic, and I, there wasn't much else to it besides I, just... I would have liked uh, to see a little bit more between Jules and Viv, uh, just about their, their personal relationship over the years. I, I think some of it was kind of just told to us as opposed to shown. 
And, and there's a particular scene involving a bloody tampon, which I felt like was really building to something and then immediately just kind of falls off the cliff. And I was like, oh, I, I thought like we were going to have like a serious break moment and, and it didn't happen. And I thought that was a little strange. Now, see, that I don't agree with. I think that uh, I think the interactions between them, by and large, uh, felt lived in to me. Um, I mean, they're meant to be sisters, and they're obviously meant to have sort of a shorthand with each other. And that's kind of what I felt looking at them. I think that came both out of, out of the performances and out of the script. It also came with their interactions with uh, with uh, V's boyfriend, Max, uh, because obviously, you know, he's known them. He's known them both a long time as well. So, so just sort of the, the shorthand between that group of friends uh, kind of... It, it, it makes sense. It feels like it predates this movie. That was my feeling watching it anyway. It's obviously not something you experienced, though. <laughs> well, I, I, I agree that there was a shorthand. I guess I think I would have liked to have seen more of their competitiveness between each other over the years. I guess it feels like all of a sudden now they're in competition. And I, I would have liked to have seen more of a history of that, of that competition. Like, see Jules always come up short. Like, see more of the parents favoring their eldest daughter by, like, what, nine minutes or whatever it was. You know, like, like I wanted to see more of that because that would have fed into more of Jules, you know, pride and anger over being slagging for what she feels like is a greater talent because she dedicates more of her life and her time to her art. Well, okay, you you talk about uh, you talk about a moment with a bloody tampon later on, and there there is another significant moment between them. These are both sort of in the first act of the film, so I don't really mind talking about them. Um, but what happens is that. Uh, Viv is pl- or V is playing a Camille Saint-Saëns piece for her for her solo audition for the big solo for regionals or whatever they're doing for their big spring production. Which you know, rumor has it there are going to be some scouts from Juilliard there that are going to be in the audience, uh, and many people have launched their musical careers as a result of nailing this solo. So we like we have the we have the stakes of this sort of clunkily spelled out in the opening dialogue here, and then. Uh, what what Juliet what Jules decides to do is do exactly the same Saint-Saëns piece, even though she's been working on a Mozart piece this whole time. And her uh, her professor, well, her former professor uh, Roger, is uh, encourages her to stick with Amadeus, stick with the piece that you've been working on this whole time. You don't want to mess with Saint-Saëns. It's not gonna it's not gonna work. You switching pieces at the last minute here, um, and. You know, it does kind of blow up in her face, but it was also sort of for nothing. You know, she went she went and did exactly the same piece as her sister. She didn't tell her sister she was going to do this in advance. So all it all it amounted to, honestly, V's response to it was was pretty reasonable. It was, you know, you didn't have to do this little stunt. Now everyone knows you're jealous of me. It was sort of sort of uh, letting this letting what was subtext between them, what was maybe even something that they were both willing to kind of overlook between them because they've got this loving sisterly relationship and all of a sudden they're forced to confront it because Jules forced the issue by pulling this move. So that seemed like a shift in their relationship. And that is what I mean when I say there was shorthand. In order for there to be a shift, which I felt in that moment, there had to be a relationship to begin with. And I think they did a fine job of spelling that out. Uh, I think that's fair. I guess I wanted more of that relationship, right? I want to see more of a buildup. Yeah, Jules turns on on uh, um, Viv or V uh, and plays the same piece. Now you were a musician, right? Like in high school. Uh, I I mean I played violin from sixth grade through uh, through twelfth grade. So yes, yeah, did, so did you make it to any chairs? Were you were you ever in direct competition with somebody for the next chair? 
Oh, many times. I was uh, I was first chair, first violin for most of high school. But I was uh, but there were actually two uh, two orchestras at my high school. One of them was the one that everybody goes into. That's the one I was in. And then one was audition only. And uh, and some of the some of the folks from my orchestra made it into the audition only one. I did not. Uh, so so how did that. you did you plot any sort of revenge against these people who made it in ahead of you? You know, I've seen some uh, I've seen some theater folks uh, on Twitter uh, make jokes along the lines of. Normal people do a high school play and think, wow, that was fun, and then they get on with their lives. Actors are people who do that and think, wow, I should do that for a career. So uh, I still occasionally bust out my violin. I still have it. Uh, I've busted it out a few times during this pandemic to have a little romantic musical moment with myself. Uh, you know, playing the, uh, I think I even played a little bit of that Nearer My God to the uh, Titanic uh, mm-hmm. solo violin music there, like we're like the entire world's going down. Sure. But, uh, That's very you know. Apt. It's a hobby, and it was only ever a hobby for me, and I I can accept that because I've moved on to other things. Um, But if that were really, you know, I know people who were in those orchestras who were still, they they still play to this day. They've performed in concerts. They've, uh, you know, even if they've gone on to have other careers, they they still play and they've gotten better over the years because for them it is a passion in a way that it never really was for me, and I respect that. Um... That sort of competition, you know, at a fucking public high school on the east side of Seattle is not it, it. It was never it never really felt like the sort of thing that was going to result in a in a career defining trajectory for me. So to answer your question, no, I never felt like it really mattered all that much. So if you found a notebook that detailed like a six step plan to success, you wouldn't have taken it. Well, at that time, I was uh, I was still way into Christianity, so I probably would have put the little devil book down and been like, oh, it's pretty freaky. <laughs> so I. I think I think you make a good point about the relationship. I I, I just wanted more of it. I, I appreciate the shorthand and I appreciate the turn because I think uh, Sydney really really captures that twist right where it's okay now I'm gonna heal up here because uh, this is my prize. Yeah. Um, I didn't care about the boyfriend. I didn't care about the boyfriend. Uh, when we get in the spoilers, we uh, kind of get into it. I didn't really think that worked uh, very well. I didn't really buy it. I understand it was. Yeah, I understand why it was there, but I just didn't really care for it. I, ultimately, I, th- I thought the movie was, was fairly entertaining. It's just that it, it felt very mediocre. I get it's a Blumhouse film, and, and you're going to have a, a, a limited budget. I think the acting was pretty solid, but honestly, it's not It's not scary. It's really not It's not anything we haven't seen before, right? Like Black Swan, I think, did a much better job of, of depicting this film than this film did. But I, I, at least I appreciate a different spin on classical music, right? Classical is cutthroat. I, I think that's at least somewhat refreshing. I think at the end of the day, I wanted a little bit more out of the competition. And uh, some of the extra things that they threw in Act 2 and 3, I, I think kind of fell a little bit flat or were really, really badly telegraphed. Fair. Yeah, I, uh, what I had to say, because I... I, I... <laughs> I definitely found myself comparing this to Black Swan for reasons that will become obvious when we get into spoilers here, but uh, I here's what I had to say about it on the night. I came away from this with a much more positive view of the film than you did. I think that where I would where I would say this film did a better job of, than Black Swan was with its level of specificity. Um, I think that you can come away from an Aronofsky film and there's a lot of very clever and interesting visual trickery and imagery that he brings into a film like that. He did the same thing with Mother, uh, which is an elaborate allegorical film, and it's also Darren Aronofsky just disappearing up his own ass. Um, it's it's a it's a very interesting film, but it's one that I think was was a bridge too far as far as the act as far as the director's ego went. Um, 
but that's uh but I think you come away from this film there are many characters in this film that are self-serious in some fairly specific ways. And what I said on the night was there is no self-seriousness in this film that goes uneviscerated by another character. And some of that is melodrama and some of that is the film trying to say something specific about what, you know, whether creativity comes from inborn talent or whether, uh, or whether it's just the sort of thing that is the result of hard work. It's kind of that, you know, the age old struggle. And, and it is one that is addressed in, in those other films like whiplash. Um, I think this film still had something to say. I think that what it had to say might even be a little bit more interesting than Black Swan in the end, at least at least more specific. Black Swan just felt like, oh, it's it's a mind fuck of an ending and credits. <laughs> uh, this felt like uh, this felt like it was it wanted to end on something definitive and then and then go to credits. So that's where I would separate them. I don't think I can I don't think we can get any further into it without getting to spoilers. So uh, let's get to it. Let's do it. All right, from here on out, spoilers for Nocturne. So let's cut to dinner time with Professor Henry here. So at this point, V has already lost everything. Um, she's lost everything. her solo to Jules. She's lost her uh, ride to Juilliard because uh, she's she's going to be uh, recuperating from a broken arm for the next six months, which Jules is, I guess, arguably kind of sort of responsible for. But she was having like a supernatural freak out at the time. So V holding her responsible for her like running through a tunnel and jumping off a cliff feels a little bit unfair to me. No, <laughs> but, I, I uh, think it's perfectly valid. I mean, like it's a good Samaritan law right there. Like she knew that there was a cliff. She didn't say anything. You gotta well, say she, something. She said something when Max was running for it. She didn't say anything when Via was running for it. But it didn't seem like that was... Like, I, I guess in the film it was presented as if it was a decision. Like, we see V running past Jules, and we see Jules's face as she is deciding not to do or say anything. And then V disappears over the edge, and then she finally snaps out of her reverie for uh, for Max to run by. But I don't know. You could just easily interpret that as she was paralyzed by whatever demonic force was possessing her in that moment. So it's kind of hard to say how much of this was her and how much of this was was her her demons. But if I'm treating if I'm treating the demon as just a metaphor for her own kind of avarice and desire for pride. desire it's for pride. talent, desi- then it it you know six of one, half a dozen of the other. So. But what I wanted to talk about was dinner with Professor Henry, who who uh, who Jules has also taken over as her professor because she got her own professor fired uh, by. He's a drunky pants. Yeah, he was a drunky pants, and she also taunted him into slapping her. Which, by the way, I thought that scene was excellent. Um, the uh, and again, a clear case of a relationship that goes back years. You know, he's known her since she was, a, a, you know, basically a, a, an adolescent. Uh, you know, a freshman in high school, mm-hmm. and he's been working with her this whole time, and she's saying these genuinely hurtful things to him about how, you know, he's a drunk and he won't amount to anything. And it's not the last time that she says things like that to one of the grown-ups in her life. It's really not a nice path that she goes down here. And well, it's, it makes it's really sense, pretty- right? Like, her own parents treat her as uh, second best. So she's going to lash out at somebody. She can't seem to do it against her parents. So she's going to do it against her surrogate parents, you know, her, her uh, music professors. Well, and Roger, the one who slaps her in the face, is ultimately the kinder of the two, because when she pulls that shit with Professor Henry, he comes back with something a bit more devastating. But before that, uh, he tells her, you've got something inside you. And he doesn't mean a demon. He means you've got talent inside you. He t- he straight up tells her you're better than your sister, which I feel like by the end, what I thought Professor Henry was doing was just playing his own little Game of Thrones. I don't think he actually had a strong opinion about which of them was more talented. I don't think he cared. <laughs> 
Yeah, I think he was just like, okay, well, that one's got a broken arm, so I'll see what I can do with this one. Exactly. <laughs> she, yeah. She's my modeling clay. I'll see what I can mold her into. Um, so they they do the sense on they uh, you know they do the uh, they do the big solo, but then they go out to dinner with uh, with her with the the Lowe's drunken parents who are back from Europe, and uh, Professor Henry gives a speech about how. Uh, basically about uh, about classical music and this is the one moment where julie benz shows up you know to drunkenly question the utility of playing or learning classical music at this point professor henry says you know we we learn you know you learn from preschool this music is a sacrifice and uh even though i've got the exact phrasing here we live in a world where people would rather listen to a half literate tea and swear in time with a drum machine but real music will live on preserved by those who deserve it and he gives v a look uh just then and then she storms out of uh, of dinner there. And later on, we learn that he was fucking her. So that was him throwing her away in front of her parents. It was so telegraphed. Like, it was so obvious what all these beats were going to be. And that's not always bad, right? Like, I, I definitely, like, sometimes predictable. I've said it before. Sometimes predictable is great. Because you can get, like, you can, you know, drum up some anticipation when nothing. Yeah, some when, some dread. And that's yeah, what this movie was when the shoe for. drops, you're like, yeah, shoe dropped. I totally knew that was coming. Uh, for this, I was like, of course he's fucking her. Of course she has to have sex with Max. Of course this is going to happen. I was a little bit surprised that when um, V fell off the cliff that she didn't die. I thought that I thought that was for sure going to be what the outcome of that event. I don't know. It's almost more painful. You know, Max comes to see. Uh, so first of all, they they split up because she correctly guesses that uh, V was cheating on Max, and then tells Max that. And then we see. Uh, and this is another interesting moment of cinematography, and also a good directing choice here. Of we see their very public breakup take place with a drone shot with just sort of buzzing dialogue down below, but we can see what's going on. We can see that this is a breakup scene happening, even though we don't hear any of the specific lines happening. And then Max goes to see, uh, goes to see Jules. And the first thing he says is, yeah, we actually split up. And she goes good and plants one on him immediately. Like it's sort of the moment where she breaks bad. Uh, It's sort of the first thing, the first time we see her doing something, doing something deliberately malicious toward her sister. I think, I think the whole, the whole picking the same Saint-Saëns piece as her, was not malicious. It was just ill-advised. Well, it was being opportunistic and saying, like, look, I'm better than you. I'm going to be better better than you at your thing, right? At yeah. your piece. I'm going to play your sport. Yeah, but then she totally steps on her own dick over that. Like, she ends up uh, she ends up passing out at the keys because that wasn't her moment. The demon wasn't ready to give her that win yet. Yes, the demon. I thought it was because she was drugged out and, and stressed out. We see her popping anti-anxiety meds the entirety of this film as well. But again, that that's that sort of push and pull of it being a metaphor or not over the course right. of the film. So whatever. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't have I don't have too much more to say here except that uh, except that you know we have the we have the black swan ending. We have the same moment of okay, it's time to time to do the big performance, which will be which will be your swan song, as it were, huh? Black uh-huh. swan. Uh-huh. And uh, and yeah, we have we have a little bit of uh, a little bit of narrative and editing trickery where we're not sure if it's really happening or if she was just uh, she was just imagining the whole thing. Um, I actually loved the final shot of this film, which is her just broken on top of a sculpture with all the people on the with all the people on the on the campus just walking past her like she isn't even there. That was the movie just waggling its middle finger at the audience, like like uh, Christopher Nolan with the Inception spinning top. Like, nope, we're not coming down on either side on this one. <laughs> Yeah, I guess I I got a little frustrated with that ending, right? Like, I think a better version of that ending 
and somebody sees the broken body and screams or something, right? I yes, she killed herself. That's obvious in the film. That's what happened. No, I I, I don't think there's a definite ending either way. But it's, but I also I also let the Inception spinning top rest on its ambiguity. It, the ending is. She had a hallucination of killing herself, and also she played her heart out and, and succeeded in the performance. The ending is both events occurred. That's kind of where I left it. No, no. The ending is she she uh, she lost her moment to shine because she was never really that good, and her inspiration burned out. She burned out like Icarus, you know, lost his wings, you know, flying too, you know, too close to the sun, and she crashed and burned. Well, that was where so that was where the scene with her going over to Professor Henry's house. Because of course she goes over to his house for a drink, and I thought we were about to watch some more illicit sex with an underage girl happen here. But no, it wasn't going to happen. Yeah, he, he has lines, right? He's like, no, no, only the hottest ones, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean these are both yeah, again both sisters are played by twenty three year old actors. But like, let's let's be real here. This is a professor sleeping with one of his underage high school students. This is, this is a crime that we are watching here, mm-hmm. and uh, but but. He doesn't just uh, he doesn't just admit that he was sleeping with V. He somewhat reluctantly, he finally tells her what he really thinks of her, which is that. Uh, and she tries to taunt him with his uh, like he's got a little conducting trophy on his on his shelf uh, for a competition that he won twenty years ago in Berlin. And he went around the world and he traveled a little bit. He had some glory days of uh, of competition and all that, which makes him better than any any student at that school. But still, he you know he's a music teacher at an arts high school. Like that's the pin- that's the pinnacle of his career. And he flat out tells her that. He's just like, you know, Juilliard doesn't need to send scouts. There's no way that you're you're not going to miss your moment of glory because you never had a chance at it. You already missed it by not by not playing a world stage when you were four years old. Basically, like, that you're still striving for this and that you're not already in that club to begin with uh, marks you as a failure, which is a horrific thing to say to somebody. Well, yeah, that's going, that's going for the jugular right there. Yeah, but, uh, you know, he's... It's like I, it's like I said. No self seriousness in this film goes uneviscerated. That was her moment to, uh, to, to just have him stick the knife in and twist. And that wasn't even the end of it for her because right before she goes on, V comes and talks to her as well, and and basically just makes her really feel bad about how she's treated her sister. Mm-hmm. But you have to you have to have that scene because you have to have closure between the two. And I, again, I thought the acting between the both of them was. Uh, was was very good there um you know it, it seemed like there was a real there was a real break there they had been supportive siblings and uh but also like v was there to twist the knife as well like you're gonna go out there and humiliate yourself like she was she was there to project a bit of malice as well so i i, I think that that scene strode that line pretty well so you think the ending is both she played her heart out got the standing ovation but also hallucinating and killing herself Yep. So the ending is really her her uh, aspirations committing suicide. Like she she ran aground. That's the best she could do. She's not going to do any better. Yeah. If I had to, if I had to definitively say what set of events happened in the film, I think that we have two suicides presented in this film. One of them is Moira's at the beginning, and everyone clearly reacts to that like it was a real event that took place in reality. They talk about it, you know, they found they found her body, they found her effects, all of that, and then we see another suicide presented at the end, and. There's no reason why anybody would not notice her body impaled on there. It's also daytime, so it's not the it's not the nighttime when the performance was happening, you know, there for the rest Could of it. Could have been the next day. The idea that she would have gone up onto the roof, jumped off, and never been found, like nobody looked for her when she didn't turn up at her performance. No, there, there, she wasn't the favorite child. I think that that was a fantastical moment. I think that it was uh, it was her her showing up as just this sort of monument. 
Like, this is how I'm going to be remembered. I did this one awesome thing at this school. Here's my bloody broken carcass on top of the statue that we have out in front of the performance center. And everybody will walk past me like, remember that time that girl did that thing? And right, uh, right. that, that was, I, I took, I took that entire final scene as a metaphor into itself, okay. but I right. may be reading too much into it, but that's a lot of people walking by not noticing a bloody That was the corpse. thing. I was like, well, if this really happened, cause it, cause it, the movie's telling me that that was, that was act six, right? Page six right. is you die. So why isn't anyone reacting to a broken mangled corpse on the, on the, on the monument? Page six is sacrifice, but she did. She didn't have to sacrifice her body. She sacrificed every relationship in her life as well. So that's kind of uh, that's kind of where I think the movie was straddling the line there. That that you know, talent uh, and talent talented expression requires you to and basically burn every bridge in your life. It's kind of a horrific and nihilistic take on the material, but honestly, no worse than Whiplash or Black Swan when it comes to that. Yeah, I guess she's no Mozart, so she has to sacrifice everything to achieve just a little bit of greatness. It's a solid take. I don't know if I 100% agree, but I definitely think you make a strong case. It would require the movie being a little bit, I think, more intelligent than maybe it was it was supposed to be, but I could be wrong. Maybe I was just looking <laughs> at a very surface level. It's fair. I don't know. I, I may have overread the movie because I was an orchestra kid. I, and I was, was going to say, lot. maybe I need to play, uh, play an orchestra growing up. I, I would understand the film better. Yeah, I, I've definitely reached out to all my orchestra peeps that I'm that I'm still close with and uh, said, "Hey, you need to check this out." So <laughs> that's that's something at least. And they're all like, "Yes, that was me. That was high school and in the east side of Seattle. We're broken. Our bodies are still broken there. You could find them. There's a cemetery." Exactly, but it's only a metaphor. All right, Daniel. Any final thoughts on Nocturne? I like Blumhouse films overall because I appreciate what they do with a relatively minimal budget. Yeah, they're scrappy. They're scrappy, and I think like they did a lot with the material that that, that they uh, that they presented. I, again, I liked the performances. I thought Sydney was quite good, and, and I, I thought the other characters were were you know if not good, at least serviceable. John Rothman is Professor Roger, even though you know he's got a limited role in this film, but I quite enjoyed him as yeah, well. Yeah, I, I think there were some missed opportunities. Uh, I would have liked to see more with the Instagram generation play out into the film, but. Yeah, overall, I was solid. Like, I, when I say mediocre, mediocre isn't like, I don't mean that in a negative light. I just mean like, I'm not going to remember this film in like two weeks. The word I would use for that is middling. Um, but uh, yeah, me- mediocre, even though it means a very, even though it means basically the same thing, seems like on the bad side of medium to me. So Yeah, like, I- I'm thinking like out of a 10, right? If we were going to give this score, like we often do, one out of 10, I'd say it's a six. You know, it, it was. I didn't hate the film. I didn't have like any strong negative visceral reactions like I have in other films. I was like, well, that was fine. Yeah, I mean, Up on the Glass is the most recent melodrama that we saw, and that film had deep structural and narrative oh, problems. Oh, I love that, that film. This film at least made sense. No, no, <laughs> that film made complete sense, right? Like, you didn't bury the body in the lake because that would have ruined the ending. Exactly. All right. Well, if you have any feedback on our discussion of Nocturne, feel free to email us at filmwonknet at gmail.com, and you can check out the film right now on Amazon Prime. Thank you for tuning in at filmwonk.net, and have a good night.